You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so we've been working left to right through the Gospel of of John, friends, for a long time. We just got a couple of weeks left, and then we're going to close this book. And a couple of weeks back on Easter, you'll remember that we opened the text that uh, where the disciples first appear to the tomb of Jesus, and they peer inside uh, John and Peter, and they they see no body. And I preached kind of a central point that morning that an empty tomb is not the same as a risen Savior that the empty tomb is not enough, that they needed to see him resurrected. And then we preached this sermon where I held up many different reasons for you guys why the Messiah had to rise, that it was necessary that the Christ rises, that it wasn't simply enough for the tomb to be empty. And then Mary Magdalene, last week, Pastor Brett preached the sermon where she goes, and she goes there to weep, expecting uh, to just go there and mourn a dead body. And she likewise finds that the body is missing. And so she is distraught, and then she sees an appearance of two angels at the head and the foot of the bed where Jesus lay, and then she has an encounter with the risen Christ, the first to see him resurrected, and he speaks to her. He says, Mary, and then she says, Rabboni, and then he testifies some things about himself to her, and then she flees and goes and seeks out the disciples, was the way that our passage ended last week, to tell them that she had seen the Lord, and to tell them the things that he had said to her. That was verse 17 and 18. Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And so we would expect, picking up the account this morning, that the disciples have all gathered together and ran to the tomb themselves to see Jesus, wouldn't we? But that's not what we see this morning. Instead, our passage this morning opens in verse 19 like this. On the evening of that very day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And so word reaches their ears that the Christ has risen, but they have not yet beheld it with their own eyes. And in fear of the Jews, they huddle together in a room and they lock the door. They huddle together in a room and they lock the door. Can you see it? You get the news that the Christ has risen and your response is to hide and lock the door for fear of the Jews. I mean, what are we to believe? Are we to believe, Mary? This is a fantastical claim that she is making, that she's seen the Lord. And even if it is true in some way, surely this has ticked off the Jews and we've just seen what they're capable of. We need to hide and we need to lock the door. And then Jesus comes, verse 3. He came and he stood among them and he says to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
And so here we see three things coming together in Jesus when he appears to his disciples in this room. One, he shows himself to them bodily. This is really important, going back a couple of weeks, really important that the disciples see the risen Christ, that he dwells bodily, that he's not an apparition, that he's not somebody's imagination, that he is dwelling bodily. He comes and he stands among them, and then he allows them to hear him. He speaks over them, peace be with you, and then he shows them his body. And with Thomas, we're going to see in, in several verses here, he's going to actually allow them to, to touch him. But we are talking about a resurrected, glorified, bodily Jesus standing among the disciples. And still they're afraid because he's just done a really weird thing. They had a locked door, and then he was in the room. He wasn't in the room, but now he is in the room, and he had to pass through a locked door. And we're not talking about a Jesus who kicked in the door. We're talking about a Jesus who's just like, hey guys, and he's suddenly in the room behind the locked door. And so Jesus is doing some Jesus stuff here, and yet they are not at peace yet until they see in verse 20, after he says, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think that the word sequence is important. After he shows them his hands and his side, then they were glad that they saw the Lord. They were something other than glad when they saw the Lord at first, but then when they saw his hands and his side, they were glad that they saw the Lord. And we could speculate about this. I will speculate about this because they gave me a microphone. And my speculation about this is that Mary Magdalene, when she saw the Lord and she suspected that he was a gardener, or in several other accounts, when people first see the Lord in his resurrected state, do not recognize him, that when Jesus appeared among them, that there was something starkly unfamiliar about him. And I want to talk about this because some have speculated very simply that because the last time they'd seen Jesus, he was so marred, so beaten, so stricken, so scourged, and so bloody, so crucified, and so dead, that seeing him risen was such a shock to the eyes that they could barely recognize him. But I think this is doubtful for several reasons, the main one being that most of them never saw that spectacle. They had been afraid well before it happened, and most of the disciples had never seen it happen. They had fled, and they were not there at the crucifixion. And also, we're imagining that this sight was, was so awful that they forgot a face that they had seen daily for three years. So that's just suddenly I, I see it, and I don't recognize it. This is unlikely. Instead, I think what we are talking about is the resurrected Jesus is starkly different than the Jesus who walked among them prior to his resurrection. This resurrected Jesus is a glorified Jesus. This is a transfigured Jesus. And we have lots of precedent for this, don't we? Not only had we seen Jesus pr pr previously in John at the Mount of Transfiguration, glorified, and only three disciples got to see this, but we see many times that like in, in the stories of Moses, when he goes and he meets with God on Mount Sinai, or when he meets with God in the tent of meeting, that he comes out and his face is shining. When we are in the presence of the glory of God, or when we are glorified, we are changed. We're changed, and something bodily about Jesus was so different that his presence made them uncomfortable until he showed them, it's me until Mary heard him speak her name and knew that voice, Mary, until he revealed the marks in his hands and in his side to the disciples, and they're like, it is you. They were glad to see the Lord. In fact, in his resurrection, what we find is that the thing that is most familiar to the disciples about him in his resurrected state are the wounds that he bore. 
And this is going to be a major theme for me this morning as I preach for you guys because we are going to be talking at length this morning about the role of the Holy Spirit in the mission of the church. This is what this passage is centrally about, the role of the Holy Spirit in applying the blood of Christ to the church, in comforting the church, and in driving and compelling the church into the mission of the church. This is a Holy Spirit passage as much as Jesus is glorified in this passage, and it would be since a central role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so Jesus appears before them, and he is bearing his wounds. And he says, look at the hands, look at the side, it is me. And when he did this, then they were glad that they saw the Lord. And I have been preaching for several weeks, if not months at this point, about this doctrine, about the role of pain and suffering and wounds in eternity. And all of the doctrine that I have been preaching to you and holding out to you over the last several weeks about this idea that one day the, present, the suffering of this present time will not be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed, this idea that somehow all things are working together for the good for those who fear the Lord, that somehow God is going to take all of your pain and suffering, and when he wipes away the tears from your eyes, one day all of it will serve only to magnify your worship and to beautify the Lord. When I say that to you, I say it primarily based on this. You know how I can know it in the way that you can know it is because Jesus Christ in his glorified state brought his wounds with him. He brought his wounds with him. Everything else is pretty much rec- unrecognizable to the disciples, and yet the one thing he brings with him are the wounds. Now, far be it from me to compare any of our suffering to the sufferings that our Lord endured. It was by his stripes that we were healed. It was by his death that we live. Our death and our suffering is not like that. And yet, insofar as we join him in his suffering and death, we join him in his resurrection and his life, don't we? That's what the scriptures testify, that our suffering is not for nothing, but that in some blessed assurance, we are being made like him, and it is serving to make us like him such that one day when you are glorified, church, when you receive your resurrected body, your wounds from this life will serve only to magnify your glory and way more than that, to magnify your vision of his glory. Be comforted. Peace be with you. So they're afraid. They're afraid of the Jews. They've seen what they can do. They're afraid, they're hiding, they're behind a locked door, and the locked door is nothing for Christ. He appears behind the door, he says, peace be with you, and he shows them his hands and his side. And then again he says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to what he says next in a minute. 
here we see the first instance of the resurrected Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a massive event at Pentecost. We could talk about different pourings out of the Holy Spirit that we see in the New Testament, but this is the first documented account where Jesus himself pours out the Holy Spirit on believers. And it's right after he says to them, peace be with you. And this made me think about a passage in James chapter 2. Let me see if I can find it. My notes are kind of scattered this morning. It says, James says in chapter 2, verse 15, If a brother is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? I'll say that again. If a brother is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? And here we see a Jesus who shows up on the scene to a people he loves who are huddled behind a locked door, scared and faithless and doubting, and he says to them, peace be with you. And our Lord would never say, peace be peace without giving the thing that is necessary for you to have the peace that he is inviting them into. And so what does he give them? He gives them himself, and he gives them the Holy Spirit, and he gives them, through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And he's been building a case for this, hasn't he? If you guys have been with Mercy's Door over the last 15 months, then in walking left to right through the Gospel of John, then you know this. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. A chapter later, in, in chapter 15, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. A chapter later, in John chapter 16, he says this, and this is important because, again, they are afraid of the Jews. Remember this. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Not because, uh, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, and nevertheless I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you, and when he comes, he will, listen close, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, connected to our passage, as he breathes out the Spirit on these people, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so you see this case building, my peace I am leaving with you, my peace I give to you, not as of the world. So let your heart not be troubled, because when the helper comes, who I will send to you, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he's going to bear witness about me. And when persecution comes against you, and when they cast you out of the synagogues, and when they start killing you and thinking that they are offering service to God, the Holy Spirit will testify to you the things about me. He will be your strength and your comfort. And the Holy Spirit will go out on the face of the earth, and he will convict them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And to you, he will fill you with my presence and my truth. And then he prays to his father a chapter later in John 17 beginning in verse 14 he says to his father in his prayer before he is betrayed I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. And then he ends his prayer, praying for all of those who will believe on account of their word. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, his current disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen? The developing doctrine of the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospel of, of John comes to a head here in this moment where the resurrected, glorified Jesus walks through a locked door and appears to his disciples, and he breathes out the Holy Spirit on them. And what does he say? Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If you withhold, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What? This is attached to the sentence, receive the Holy Spirit. Take everything that I just read over you, everything I just preached over you about what the Holy Spirit does, what the Helper does at the resurrection of Christ, at the sending of Christ. He goes out over the world and convicts concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He indwells the church, calls to mind for them and to their hearts all the things of Christ, and gives them the words he spoke, the word of the Lord. And then he drives you out, the church, with the word of the Lord to declare it among the nations. Remember that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus Christ had nothing short of the world on his heart as he went to the cross. He wants the nations, and this is 
the great plan of God for all eternity to bring everything under submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, such that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We sang it this morning, didn't we? This is the master plan of creation. This is the master plan of redemption. This is the purpose of all things that the Lord is doing to bring everything into subjection to his son, Jesus Christ. He wants the world. And so he says in his prayer, I'm not taking them out of the world. Just as you sent me, I'm sending them into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when he goes so far as to say, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I want you to think about this, church. You, bearing the message of life, the gospel, which is the fragrance of life to those who are being saved, as you speak the gospel out in the world, this soil that the Holy Spirit has been preparing, and you get to see with your own eyes somebody believe renounce their sin, repent, and cling to Jesus alone for their righteousness before God, when you see people with the scales fall from their eyes and they behold the Lord, when you see a heart changed from a heart of stone to a, a heart of flesh, you can sincerely look at them and say, my brother, your sins are forgiven. And when they say, no, I want no part of that. I've got my own way. I don't believe it. You could say with a broken and contrite heart, brother, then your sins remain upon you. Your sins are not forgiven because there is but one mediator between God and man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life and the Holy Spirit testifies about him. Repent and believe the gospel lest your sin remains upon you. This is the mission of the church. And you see, the wounds that marred our Lord at Calvary, there was an aversion to them by the disciples originally, wasn't there? It's like when I was preaching on Peter's denial several weeks ago, and I said that he did not have on that day what you and I do have. He needed what we have, the Holy Spirit that he was not held by the comforting Holy Spirit indwelling him in the moment of his denial, but that one day when he faced his own crucifixion, he would walk it all the way out as he was bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. What changed for Peter? Well, it was this. This is what changed. And it was the same. What made them flee from having to see the wounds when he was receiving them? But now upon seeing, now, now when they see him, they say, show me the wounds. I, I need to see the wounds. And now they are, now it makes me glad. What changed? The Holy Spirit. Why were they hiding in a locked room on this day, but they would all meet a martyr's death spreading the gospel on some future day? This happened, church. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And they were given the commission in Matthew 28 to go. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
He did not call us into anything that he did not equip us for. He poured out the Holy Spirit richly on the church. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And so you might say to me, Adam, I don't have all that I need to obey here. I don't know enough. I'm not articulate enough. I don't, I don't have good answers if, if somebody comes back to me with a question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Were you reasoned into faith? Was this an intellectual academic exercise for you? Did you weigh the pros and cons? Did you, did you go through the facts? Did apologetics win you to Christianity? Or did the Holy Spirit take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh? Did God Almighty place faith in you as a free gift from God so that no man may boast? Who exactly saves people? Is it you? Or is it him? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are messengers and messengers only. So by God, spread the gospel. I mean, if you know this, I was dead, but now I live. I was blind, but now I see. What happened? I don't know. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. Then you can spread the gospel. Some of the earliest churches in church history, the New Testament testifies, they're made up of like, it's like a table of like three people. It'd be like a, like a recently demon-possessed teenage girl and, an, and a Roman jailer having dinner. There's a church. What do I know? I don't know. I met this guy, Jesus, and he did this thing, and I was saved. And this is not to put down discipleship and growth and doctrine and theology. Like, by, like, please, if the Lord lets you live long enough to know him better, know him better. But there's not some bar that you need to clear before you can share the good news of the gospel. The gospel is simple yet profound. And he has commissioned us all to carry it to the ends of the earth so that he can ransom a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation for himself. And then we go from this lofty view of what is in play here into this strange return to one guy. Now, Thomas wasn't there. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, he wasn't with them when Jesus came. And one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So, the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So, verse 26, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I feel like we've seen this before. A minute ago, our good Lord cares about the one as significantly as he cares about the nations. He is simultaneously after the whole of the remnant and after Thomas, after you. 
he looked out at the room. Thomas isn't here. He waits eight days until Thomas is there, and then he replays the events verbatim. Locked door. Peace be with you. Want to see my hands? Because Thomas didn't get to see it. Thomas didn't get to go through it. Thomas needed what the others had received, and the Lord leaves the 99 to get the one, doesn't he? And so here Thomas is his one. He gets a special encounter with the Lord. Thomas says, I'm going to have to stick my fingers in the hand. I'm going to have to stick my hand in the side. And Jesus is like, have at it. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. You know, we know about Thomas throughout the Gospel of John, several different stories. When Jesus first gets word that Lazarus is sick and dying, he says that he's going to return to the place where the Jews had just been trying to kill him. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, where he gets the name from, he says all nihilistically, let us also go that we may die with him. In John 14, when Jesus is talking about the, the place, his father's house and the place to which he is going, he says, and you will know the way. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then here in John 20, I will never believe. I'm going to have to stick my hand up in there. And then we hear, my Lord and my God. The title of this morning's sermon was Peace Be With the Doubter. Because each and every one of us is often like Thomas. You know, I, I fear that you might hear me preaching this morning at some level that there's how the disciples were before they received the Holy Spirit, but then they received the Holy Spirit, and it was only onward and upward from there, but that's not how it was. When they received the Holy Spirit, they received the power to obey, the ability to say no to sin, and the power and ability to obey, and yet the flesh clung so closely, didn't it? Fear was always crouching at the door. Doubt was insecurity was always at the door. Their ministries were plagued by great lows, but then also marked by great highs. And I would say that it went like this. Thomas, Holy Spirit. Thomas, Holy Spirit. Adam, Holy Spirit. Adam, Holy Spirit. Joseph, Steve, y'all are down here. Holy Spirit is up here. There is still something at play here where there's this tension between the flesh and the Spirit. But guys, the Spirit wins. The mission advances despite you. The mission advances through you, and it's because the Holy Spirit is in you. So peace be with you, doubter. In the moment that you need it, the Lord will give you grace sufficient for you. He is not stingy in pouring out his love and his grace and his wisdom and his power and his word and his very self. You see, a lot of us, we like to look backwards to the cross, don't we? We see the events of Calvary and we're like, that is where it all happened. And that's not where it all happened. Those are the central events that needed to happen to make what is happening now possible. The blood of Jesus is being applied to the face of the earth through the mission of the church. 
That was a historical event. This is a now event. People are still being saved. The blood of Christ is still being applied. The sacrificial death of Christ is still being applied. The resurrection of Christ is still being applied. He's still saving. He's still living. We worship a living God, not a dead one. He's still doing it, guys. He's not done. I know because he's not back. And when he gets back, he will wipe every tear from our eyes such that the suffering, the wounds, will be unworthy to be compared. And so we go. And we go with boldness, not in our strength, for we are frail, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Thomas did. After being labeled Doubting Thomas because he was weird in John 11, weird in John 14, weird in John 20, he says, my Lord, my God. And from there, the early Syrian church says that he is the one who brought the gospel as far as India. And the early Egyptian church has documents saying that, and it was confirmed by historians Eusebius and Origen, that he brought the gospel to Parthia, which was an empire that was east of the Roman Empire empire. And so he received the Holy Spirit and the commission to go, and doubting Thomas went. And so my invitation to the doubter is, peace be with you. Go. Peace be with you. Go. Go as you doubt. Go while you're scared. Go while you're insecure. Go while you're, you're drawing on grace. If you need him, that's good because you've got him. If you don't need him, then no one needs what you're selling. We are a needy people bringing a message of hope to needy people. We don't graduate from our need in order to invite other people to not need him with us. We continue to need our living Lord and we invite other people to know him. You understand? And then we get to the end of our passage. He says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, now he's talking about us, isn't he? We could rephrase his words. That's risky, but I'm going to do it for a second. Blessed are those who receive the Holy Spirit. He's, re he's paraphrasing what he's already said. It is better that I should go. It is to your advantage that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. You say, you believe because you've seen. I say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who receive the Holy Spirit and walk by faith and not by sight. See, church, you've received everything that you need. Your faith is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. The Word of God is a gift. You have what you need for the mission you have been given and for the peace that he offers you. You've got it. It is better that he go, that the Holy Spirit come. But this is not a forever thing. You will behold him with your eyes. Take heart. But on this side of things, it is better for him to be in you than for him to be beside you. It made me think of a passage from Luke where Jesus is doing miracles and he's teaching, and a woman, Luke 11, verse 27, she says, it says, a woman in the crowd raised her voice with a loud voice, and she said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, this is not a new thing. 
we naturally conclude when we behold the things of Christ that the biggest blessing is to touch him, it's to hold him, it's to stick the finger in the side, it's to, it's to nurse him, it is to carry him in the womb, this woman is saying. Like proximity to you, relationship with you, that is the one who is blessed, and that is true. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And as we get close to concluding our book of John, at this point, if we can't all pretty darn close to quote John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the, and the Word was with, and the Word was. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and not anything was made that was made without Him. In Him is life, and this life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This Jesus is the Word. This is why he says, blessed is the one who hears the Word of God and keeps it. You want to draw near to the Lord? Hear his Word and keep it. And he said, go. 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 My peace be with you. Go. And he also said he's coming back. You keep it in mind. Now, Verse 30, we'll end our time together. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did John write this book? Why did he write these examples? And, and, and how did he, as he was thinking about, what do I include? I, I could never write all of the things that there are to write. Why, why do I put these signs in, in, in here? Well, it's for this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Guys, you've all got life in someone's name, life in your name, life in, life in your, your significant other's name, life in your children's name, life in your boss's name. Whose name do you have life in? Because life in anyone's name but his name is no life at all. It is death. This is such an aside, and I, but I've started. In glory, when we take up our resurrected bodies, ourselves, and we are scarcely familiar, right? Some of us will need more fixing up than others, I'm sure. But we'll all need a significant amount of fixing up. And I was thinking about this uh, just in deep thought about what we're seeing with our Lord here. But when we think about life in Him, about glorified resurrection, eternal life, where there is no death, no sin, nothing marked by pain and suffering at all, where all of the distortions and dysfunctions in your heart, in your mind, where sin has been shed from your body, like, it's just, come on. We can't imagine it, right? And we like to imagine, you know, if our legs are broken, that our legs will work, right? If we're uh, five foot seven, that we're six foot three, right? If we're, if we're, we think about our maladies and we think that's what's going to be fixed when I'm glorified. But there's certain things that I think we don't put on the table. This is where my deep thought comes in. Where we say these things are not broken things that need fixing. These things are just not a natural part of life. Where we've actually become so comfortable with the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness of this life 
that we call things natural and normal parts of life that are actually natural and normal parts of death. Like, when I think about my glorified body, I don't imagine that I won't have wrinkles, right? I'm making this one up as we go. But wrinkles aren't high on the list, but wrinkles are evidence that my cells are multiplying more slowly because I am marching towards my death. There are certain, like, like, I don't imagine that my kidney function will be restored to its maximum capacity, right? I don't imagine about the return of appetite, right? There are signs that you are moving towards your inevitable death, and we call those a natural part of life when, in fact, they're a natural part of death. When the disciples didn't recognize Jesus, I think it's because the stuff they didn't even know needed glorifying were glorified. You understand? So when I say you have life in His name, I'm describing a life so unimaginably glorious, so imaginably worth it, that you can lay everything else down in pursuit of Him, that you can count all else as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. It's my invitation to you this morning and every morning, Mercy's Door, that peace be with you, doubter, as you go and cling to Him, believe in Him, that you may have life in His name. Let's pray.